Yeah, thanks, Kim. Well read. I mean, this is, this is one of the most confronting passages in the Bible, if we hear what it's really saying, isn't it? Uh, and there's, there's actually a long history of artwork that seeks to represent some of the things that we've, we've heard in this passage. I want to show a few of them just to start with this morning. Uh, here's one by uh, Caravaggio. Um, and uh, this one's pretty realistic, as you can see, in terms of its style. Uh, you can see Jesus on the sort of second from the left there, face downcast and, and gaunt. And then to the right of him, gripping him, is Judas, who's just betrayed him. And then that long arm is of one of the Roman soldiers who's come to grab him. And, and it's hard to see on the, the screen there, but the arm actually reaches up for his throat. This is a really confronting scene. Uh, and, and some of the representations of what's happening here in this passage are very realistic. Uh, to maybe relieve the pressure a little bit, some are less realistic, like this one. Um, this is by the, uh, the famous uh, painter Stanislaus uh, Rakitek, I think is his name. I'm not an art historian, but something like that. And uh, it was either done by him or, I've seen she's left, Daisy Wakely, one of those. Um, <laughs> If I put my modern art historian sort of like go to the Museum of Contemporary Art and put that hat on, you know, what's this about? Well, it's trying to capture the chaos and darkness of Good Friday, right? You can see that or something like that. Uh, here's another one. This one's interesting. Some, some are more creative. So this was done in the 1930s uh, and you can see that by some of the fashion that's there. So the women wearing dresses... Um, the, the man in the background there with the long pants, the haircuts of those on the crosses, including Jesus, they're all clean-shaven. It's like that World War I soldier sort of clean-cut appearance. And then if you look right in the background, you see that X? That's the back of an infantry soldier. And so they've replaced the Roman centurions with World War I fighters. Just a few years after this one, here's a painting that puts Jesus in the centre uh, but surrounds him with some of the suffering in the world at that time, in the lead-up to World War II, and in particular, uh, some of the suffering that Jews went through in that sort of seven, eight, nine, ten years in the lead-up to the war. Uh, I'm going to show you one more piece of art, and it's a really interesting one. It was done in 2021. Here it is. Isn't that fascinating? And I think it's actually a, a good reminder that although there's so many artworks out there that represent perspectives of Good Friday and perspectives of Jesus, each of us have our own perspective. Each of us have a perception of Jesus. Who is Jesus to you? How do you perceive him? Who do you see him to be? How do you make sense of what happens on Good Friday? If you were to take your thoughts and put them up in sort of an artwork or a photograph or something, what would it look like? How do you see Jesus? That's the question we're going to deal with today. And the way that we're going to do it is we're going to actually see three perspectives of Jesus that trace their way through this chapter that Kim has just read for us. Mark chapter 15. We're going to see the perspective of a governor, the perspective of the people, and the perspective of a Roman centurion. And as we do, we're going to think about how do our perspectives of Jesus line up or otherwise with the perspectives of these three groups, okay? 
as you do, I want you to think, how does this challenge you? How does this perhaps provoke you? How does this raise questions for you? And I hope along the way we also see something of the hope that might surprisingly come to those whom we least expect. Let's pray and we'll dive in. Lord God, this is your word. We ask you please to speak, open eyes to see who Jesus is. Lord, cause us to sit in the the somberness, maybe even the discomfort of Good Friday. But we ask in your mercy also show us the hope of this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Open up with me to Mark chapter 15 in your Bibles. Uh, If you don't have a Bible here this morning, that's fine. What you can do is grab your phone. It might feel weird to have your phone like open during church. But if if I don't see a Bible, I want to see a phone, okay? (laughs) And just put this Mark 15 ESV. Throw that into Google or Bing or DuckDuckGo or whatever you use. Mark 15 ESV, and that will pull up the exact passage that we're looking up here, okay? Mark 15. And we're starting at verse 1. And as we can see, it starts with a morning. It starts with a sunrise. Except Jesus has been up all night. In fact, overnight, he's been arrested on false charges against him, charges of sedition, charges of pretending to be a king against Caesar. He's been through a kangaroo court in the middle of the night where false witnesses have been brought out and they've trotted out false accusation after accusation. His friends, his followers have all abandoned him. They've scattered. And now the sun rises on a new day. And in this morning, the chief priests of the Jews sort of bring Jesus out to the Roman governor of this region, whose name is Pilate. And there, bent before them, is Jesus. Bent before the religious authorities. Bent before the secular authorities. There he is, answering for his supposed crimes. What do they see? when they look at this man. How do you see Jesus? How do they see Jesus? Well, the first perspective we're going to look at is the perspective of Pilate. And we all know how the story goes. Kim just read it a moment ago. Uh, The chief priests say that Jesus claims to be king. This is a challenge to the authority of Caesar. And so, Pilate, you've got to do something about this, right? Only Pilate is sceptical about their accusation. This guy is claiming to be a king. He's in chains. And I don't see an army in the street demanding his release. This all sounds pretty sceptical to me, thinks Pilate. And so he sort of rigs up this choice. He says to them, okay, I'm going to release one prisoner to you guys, to the chief priest, to the crowd. He says, you can either have Jesus, the supposed king of the Jews, or you can have this serial killer named Barabbas, who literally did gather an army to try and overthrow Caesar. Right? He's guilty of the stuff that they accuse him of. Which one do you want? And we know how the story goes. They choose Barabbas, Pilate sides with the crowd, and Jesus is handed over to be crucified. 
What is it that Pilate sees in Jesus at each step of that story, each step of that account? Well, the first thing he sees is that Jesus is innocent. Right? For a start, he doesn't fall for the chief priest's accusations. Take a look at verse 10. He perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. Yet Pilate sees that it's not truth that motivates them. It's not concern for Caesar that motivates them. They're they're jealous of the following that Jesus has gathered. That's why they've arrested this guy and trumped up these false charges. Then if you jump down to verse 14, after he's, he's made that sort of choice to the crowd, Barabbas or Jesus, he appeals to them, why? Why should I crucify him? What evil has he done? See, Pilate recognizes that Jesus is innocent. But then perhaps he also recognizes something else. He perhaps also sees that there's something more to this man. And he can't quite put his finger on it, right? He's not quite willing to say that he's really a king or that he's really the son of God or something like that. But there's there's something more to him. Take a look at verse 2. Right when Pilate first meets him, he asks him a question. And the question is, are you the king of the Jews? And uh, Pilate originally will have spoken Greek. And the New Testament was, by and large, written in Greek. And so we actually have access to the words as Pilate would have originally said them. And, and it kind of sounds like this. It sounds like, you are the king of the Jews? It's as much a question as it is a statement. You are the king of the Jews? Which makes sense of Jesus' response. Take a look at what Jesus says in reply. He answered him, you've said so. Much a question as it is a statement. Pilate says, you are the king of the Jews? Well, listen to the words that's come out of your mouth. Listen to what you're actually saying, Pilate. Because, I mean, Jesus has been ministering in Pilate's territory for three years now. He's been healing people. He's been teaching with authority. He's made these claims about who he is. Pilate, listen to what you're saying. And there is a sense in which perhaps Pilate believes this. He's not totally sure. He can't put his finger on it. But there is something more. Because later on, when Jesus is crucified, remember, there's a a, a sign that goes up over the cross. You know what it says? What's it say? Yeah, king of the Jews, king of the Jews. That's right. And, and a bloke comes along and says to him, hey, take that sign down. Take that sign down. Just put instead that he claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate decides, no, I'm going to leave it up. What I've written, I've written. Now, again, that's not an out-and-out claim that, oh, well, now I'm a believer or something. But he's, he's just recognizing there's something more. And I reckon there are plenty of Aussies that are kind of in this category, right? That they believe that Jesus is innocent. So if you ask them, should Jesus have died on the cross? Oh, no. He was a peaceful man. I was chatting with a lady just this week, actually, who uh, she was talking about how she respected Jesus' teachings and she respected the way that he lived, showed compassion. Maybe even if the Bible's telling the truth, maybe he healed people. Not, to- not so sure on that. But he was certainly a compassionate, peaceful man. Should he have died on the cross? No way. And maybe there's, there's a bunch of Aussies as well I've talked to, Coasties as well, who would say, I think there is something more to him. I can't put my finger on it. But, but is he God? No. But, but he certainly seems like more than just a man. The problem is that kind of hunch that there's more to Jesus or he's innocent only takes someone so far. Because look at what 
happens with Pilate next. He, he's, he might see that he's innocent. Jesus is innocent. He might see that there's something more to him, but he also sees that probably he's not worth it. Verse 15. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Notice where the causality is put here. Pilate, he delivered him to be crucified. This is Pilate's choice, not the crowd's choice. This is Pilate's choice, and he makes it because he fears the crowd. And think about it. What's going to happen? If Pilate goes against the crowd and releases Jesus instead of Barabbas, one of two things is probably going to happen. First, the crowd's just going to lynch him. All right. Second, the chief priests are going to go to Pilate's supervisor, who's just a man named uh, Caesar, and they're going to talk to the big boss and say, you know, your, your guy, Pilate, he's just let a pretender to the throne roam free in Judea. And so then it's not just Jesus who's getting crucified, it's also Pilate, right? So he sees that and he goes, this is not worth it. I can't stand with this bloke, even though I think he's innocent, even though there might be more to him. I can't stand with him. I will lose too much if I actually align myself with this guy. And I reckon a lot of people today are similar. I can look back to times in my life where I've made similar decisions. There's one guy who puts it this way. Many today are like Pilate. They see no harm in Jesus, right? He's an innocent guy. But they see nothing else. And therefore, they see no reason to risk anything for him. They regard Jesus as simply the king of the Jews, like maybe he has some authority in one area of life. And they do not recognize that he is the king of kings. Do you reckon that's true? Can you resonate with that? Could you see in some way that either that is you right now or that was you at some point? When push comes to shove, many of us want to protect our own interests rather than stand with Jesus. In fact, coming back to that Caravaggio painting from before, I didn't tell you about the identity of, of one of these guys off to the left. That's actually uh, depicted as St. John, one of Jesus' close disciples. In fact, in the Gospel of John, he's called the disciple whom Jesus loved. And what he's doing here, this man who walked with Jesus for three-odd years... He's actually fleeing. And it's a little bit hard to see again on the screen, but there's like a, a robe flowing behind him that one of the soldiers is grabbing for. And so he's screaming out like, oh, don't grab me. And this is in fact what happens in the gospel accounts. Jesus' disciples, including John, including Peter, the guy who said that he would go to death with Jesus, they all scatter to the wind when Jesus is arrested. And what that says to me is no matter how close someone has been to Jesus, even if they've been coming to church their whole life, right? We are all at risk of abandoning him when the cost gets too high. In other words, we can all be short-sighted when it comes to our perception of Jesus, even if we've been going to church our whole lives. There's something in our nature, our, you'd say our sinful nature, that, that would rather protect our own safety and security and pleasure and reputation than entrust ourselves to the true king, come what may. And for Pilate, 
That means he delivers Jesus over to be crucified. Which brings us to verse 16. And here we find a second perspective on Jesus. The people's perspective. The chief priest's perspective. The crowd's perspective. The general perspective. If Pilate was maybe intrigued, this group is contemptuous. If Pilate didn't have courage to stand with Jesus, this group has courage to stand against Jesus. And we first see that in the soldiers. Verse 16. The soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. Now just picture that. They called together the whole battalion. A battalion is about 600 soldiers. Imagine that. Imagine 600 burly blokes getting together because they want to watch this scene. Right? This is like entertainment for them. Yeah, come and see. We got this guy. We're going to do some stuff to him. And there's probably safety in numbers, I reckon. That's what galvanizes them to do what they do next because they dress him in a purple cloak. That was the symbolic of royalty because purple dye was really expensive to source and so purple fabric was the color that kings or queens or royalty would wear. Uh, they twist a crown of thorns. They scrape it onto his head. They mock him, spit on him. You can even see that in this artwork here to the left. They hit him. They pretend to worship him. Hail, king of the Jews! But what's interesting in Mark's account of, of this event is he spares us the gory details. This isn't like uh, that movie, I don't know if you've watched it, The Passion of the Christ. It's the sort of movie you could only watch once. right? Very gory, probably accurate, but, but very confronting. Um, Mark spares us many of those gory, blood-soaked sort of details. And instead, he focuses a lot more on the, the shame and the rejection that's happening in this scene. The soldiers strip Jesus. They divide up his clothes. Yeah, just, just how shaming that is. And then verse 29, even the passers-by shake their heads and deride Jesus, saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. Jesus is hanging there, naked, and just your general punters passing by and mocking him. The chief priests come back around. They mock him as well. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Verse 32. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. They probably said it just like that. They're not really saying we want to see and believe. They're mocking him. They're taunting him. Oh, we'll never believe in this rubbish. Even the criminals crucified either side of him, spit out insults at him. Complete rejection, mockery, scoffing. See, the vast majority of people in this scene have the same perception of Jesus, and that is that they hate him. He's an object of scorn. He's something to be rejected and, and shaked your head at and, and mocked. They hate that he claims to be king. They hate that he claims to come to save them, as if they needed saving. And obviously, there are people like this today, right, who hate Jesus and hate Christianity. They're probably not here this morning. If that is you, welcome, great, glad you're here. 
Probably you've got someone who loves you, who invited you, and that's great. (laughs) Good on you. But I want to make a claim here. It's not just the people who might be out there, okay? Actually, this is all of us. This mockery, this hatred of God that we see here, this is every single one of us. You might go, well, no way. Like, I, don't, I don't hate God. No, like I never have, never will. I love God. Okay, let me give you an illustration. Uh, a short time ago, we had a state election, right? Uh, if you're anything like me, I didn't know really who I was voting for. Like, it was all just a bit of a confusing thing. Where I, I don't know, this guy, this guy, someone's shaking my hand as I'm entering into the polling. I don't know. But think about something which, which actually has stakes, like the federal election, okay? When did we last have the federal... Sort of. Uh, when did we last have a federal election? It was a year ago, something like that. Um, I want you to think, bring to mind for yourself, one of the parties in the federal election that you hate... <laughs> Like, you would hate to see them get in, like the Liberals, right? <laughs> Labor, the Greens, the Shooting and Fishing Party, the Hunting Party, the Pirate Party. There's, there's one called the uh, Legalised Cannabis Now Party. Just imagine whichever party you think would just do a horrible job governing this country, okay? Got them in your mind? Imagine they get in. And not just they get in. They've got the overwhelming support of the Australian public. And so they don't just get in. They stay in. They stay in for multiple terms. And what happens over those years is they begin to enact laws and make changes to this country, embodying everything that you fear, everything that you would hate to see, right? There's no more free speech or there's too much free speech or whatever along the spectrum. And now imagine, after all these changes have been made, you get to talk with the person in charge of this party. Like you're out to dinner and there they are at the table and you get talking with them. Would you say that you hate them? Would you say that to their face? Probably not, (laughs) right? Rob Jenner keeps telling me that's because we're too British. Like we've got British genes, we we just drink tea and we don't really tell the truth. (laughs) But... um, Imagine you do get to talk with this person. The conversation would probably go like, oh, yeah, no, I don't, I don't hate you. Of course not. You seem like a pretty good bloke or whatever. I mean, I just hate your laws. I hate all these changes that you've made. Not you, just the, the things you've done. <laughs> and they'll go, well, you know, yeah, that was me who made those laws. <laughs> and that was me who, who made those changes. Oh, of course, but, you know, they're the problem, not... Not you, sir. And then they say to you, well, you know, I'm actually going to make some more changes. I'm actually going to enact some more laws that make these ones look like a mere shadow. Because I've got a vision for what life in Australia should be like. And I'm going to keep chasing it. I'm going to keep making sure we get there. Julie, I reckon I can see your eye twitching. (laughs) Not really. (laughs) Right, but, but how would you feel about the guy then? You might say, I don't hate him. You wouldn't say it to his face. But tally it up, right? You hate his laws. You hate the changes he's made. You hate his vision for Australia. You hate his ideas for what life should be. Really, you hate everything about the bloke. And so too when it comes to God. Right now, he's actually in charge. It's not like a people's vote and, you know, not much really changes. He's actually the king of everything. And he has expectations for how we should live. They're revealed in his word. Every time... 
we live the way we think is great, but goes against what God defines as good, we say we hate his laws. That's what we're saying with our actions. Every time we carve out and live out the idea of the good life that actually goes against God's vision for what the good life actually entails, we say we hate his plans. Every time we behave as though we are the ones in charge and not him, and he has no right to tell us how to live, then we are saying, in fact, that we hate all of God's ways and we, in fact, hate God. You might not use the words, but it's there. We are the mockers. We are the scoffers. Either this is you, or was you, or you're in denial. From the song that we just sung, Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. And so in the soldiers and criminals and chief priests, in their mocking and scoffing and hatred, we must see ourselves. Not just someone out there. The problem's here. The problem's me. The problem's my heart. And if we're willing to accept that, it opens us to see a third and final perspective of Jesus here. One that comes from a very surprising source, actually, the perspective of a centurion, a Roman soldier, watching Jesus die. And if we're willing to admit our sinfulness, our rejection of God, that we are the scoffers, the mockers, the haters of God, then we might be able to see what he does. So, the centurion. Now, a centurion, if you're not aware, is a guy who's in charge of usually something like 100 soldiers. He's a commander. And he would have probably been the one like supervising the death of Jesus. That's why he's standing there. So he probably would have ordered the nails going in. He probably would have been involved in most of the steps leading up. That's the guy. And he's seen many deaths like this before. Okay? This is his job. He's used to it. He's not put off by it. He's seen plenty of deaths. Seen it all before. But he hears Jesus cry out these, these words in verse 34. Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he probably doesn't understand really what those words mean at the time. Right? He's a Gentile. He doesn't understand that Jesus is quoting Psalm 22 and you know, it's not going to come to his mind. But perhaps he sees something in Jesus' face that's, that's a different kind of anguish. It's different to just physical pain. There's something more going on here. And then he looks up and he sees that darkness is creeping across the sky. In fact, it hangs there for three hours. Something is happening here that's beyond just a normal person dying a physical death. And then he cries out, Jesus cries one final time. Probably the words that John records for us later on. Probably he cries here, it is finished. And then there's silence. And what's of note is that the accusations have ceased. Mark doesn't record anything else that the mockers and scoffers say. He doesn't record anything else that the chief priests say. He doesn't record anything else that the crowd says. The mocking has ceased. The accusations have ceased. Everything falls silent. And then breaking into that silence, we hear the words of the centurion in verse 39. 
that when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Just picture that. Everything's silent and you hear those words. And they're shocking words. How could this man say those words? He's a Gentile for a start. He has no idea what it means to be the son of God in the biblical sense. He's not one of God's chosen people, the Israelites. Not only that, he's a Roman centurion. All of his mates were mocking Jesus, spitting on him, whipping him, striking him. He, he probably would have been involved in all that. He may have been the ringleader, being the supervisor of all this stuff. He was the guy that ordered the nails to, to go into to Jesus' uh, wrists and, and ankles. How on earth would he now say, truly this man was the son of God? And it's even more shocking when you consider what that phrase means to the Roman mind. Here's a picture of a, a, Romus, a Roman coin from around this time. So, uh, a bit of history. What happened in 40-ish BC? Uh, Julius Caesar, you've heard of Julius Caesar, famous guy. Uh, famous emperor of, of uh, the Roman people, uh, Julius Caesar claimed to be God. He claimed to be divine. And the Roman Senate at the time went, well, you're Caesar, so I, get, I guess what you says goes. And so they said, okay, you're God now, you're divine, we'll all worship you. And then Caesar's son, uh, Caesar Augustus, took on the title Son of God. And future Caesars would then also take that title, Son of God, sort of out of respect. Like, we're not going to take the title of God that Julius Caesar took, but we'll say we're his son. So, for the Roman mind, to say someone is the Son of God is reserved only for the most powerful person in the empire with armies at their disposal and bodyguards around the clock. That is Caesar himself. That's why you get Caesar's uh, sort of portrait there on one side of the coin and then on the other side of the coin you get this phrase and I had to write it down because I don't know Latin divi filius which just means God's son so the son of God is the most powerful bloke in the world in the Roman mind and this centurion looks at a weak bleeding dying man hung by nails on a wooden cross crying out about how God has forsaken him, who didn't even defend himself from the false accusations made against him. And he goes, Caesar's not the son of God. That guy is. What would bring someone to make that sort of claim? What would bring someone to totally reverse all of their assumptions about how the world works? Because consider what happens for this guy in this moment. His assumption of what true power is has just changed. Yeah, power is military might, and it's, it's having the army, it's having the position. No. Power is in bleeding and dying and, and vulnerably giving up your life. doesn't make sense. What's true love? Well, it's, it's Caesar's benevolence. It's him making sure that the empire runs smoothly. It's making sure that we all have water and roads and peace. No, it's not. It's, it's this man giving his life. Again, it just doesn't, it's not logical. It doesn't make sense. So what would cause someone to have this huge reversal in the way that they see Jesus? Well, we can only conclude that God has given him the eyes of faith in this moment. And in fact, that that's only possible 
once Jesus actually dies on the cross. Because here's the thing. This is the first time in Mark's gospel that any human has used this title for Jesus, Son of God. None of his disciples use it. They didn't realize it. It's only this man from totally unlikely sort of background who looks and he sees Jesus dying and goes, this is the Son of God. A title that heretofore had only been used by God the Father himself and the angels in Mark's gospel. But now a human realizes, a really unlikely human. And of course, he doesn't understand everything right away, right? <laughs> but he, he understands enough in, the, in seeing the way Jesus dies. That's what it says. He saw the way that Jesus died as he breathed his last. And he knows enough in that to confess some sort of faith in Jesus, in saying he's the Son of God, and entrust himself to Jesus, come what may. Because you've got to believe that this opens some, this due to some risks. Now, this kind of confession, as I said, is only possible this side of the cross. Until Jesus died, his true identity was hidden. I mean, he talked about it. One example is in Mark 10, 45, the words are there for you on the screen. Even the Son of Man came not to be served like a Roman emperor, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus spoke those words early, earlier on before he died. So he did talk about why he'd come, but people couldn't get it until he actually died. And the Roman centurion is kind of the first fruits of that. He's the first one to realize. Because when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Something is actually happening there. What's happening is the perfect, innocent son of God is giving his life in exchange for sinful, mocking God-haters. Like the soldiers, like the people passing by, wagging their heads, like you and me. That's what's happening in this moment on the cross. Jesus who never sinned. Pilate was right about that. Jesus was innocent. But he was more than innocent. He was perfect. He always followed God's way. He always lived out God's vision for life. He always followed his Father's word. He didn't deserve to die. That's where the lady I was talking to this week was also correct. But merely acknowledging someone as innocent only takes us so far. Jesus wasn't just an innocent bloke. He was a guy on a mission. And his mission was to give his perfect, sinless life in exchange, like in substitute for those of us, all of us who have sinned. Because what happens there on the cross, and this is why Jesus cries out what he does, what happens is Jesus is treated as the sinner that we are, right? The centurion who was responsible for, for uh, the nails going into Jesus' hands and feet. Jesus is treated by God the Father in that moment as if he was the one who made those God-hating decisions. Those who walked by mocking. Jesus is treated as if he is the mocker. Jesus takes all of our sin, all of our decisions, the thoughts we've nurtured in our heart, all of it he takes upon himself. He is treated in substitute as the sinner, even though he's not. And then he dies the death 
we ought to have died. That's what what's happening in that scene on the cross. Jesus is not just dying a death, he is dying a substitutionary death. Are you with me on that? You know what I'm saying? Right? It's like we come off the field, he comes on the field. It's the substitute. And in so doing, he bears the brunt of what we've done. He takes the wrath and judgment of God in our place. He is forsaken by God in our place. That's why he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he's being treated as if we are the ones. Right? Like he is being treated as if he deserves that judgment in our place. That's what's happening. And then in verse 38, when the curtain in the temple tears miraculously in two from top to bottom, what's happening there? Well, the, the curtain is the place that sort of marks off sinful humanity from God's presence. Torn from top to bottom, not from bottom to top where a person could tear it, but from top to bottom to show that now the way is open to come to God through Jesus and his substitutionary death. Right? Because in this moment where Jesus dies on the cross, God the Father judges his son as if he's a forsaken sinner. That is why we can come to God. And that's the hope of Easter that ironically we can only actually see in death. I mean, imagine if you came along this morning thinking, hey, I'm going to tell you how death brings hope. Well, it does. And even more ironic is that while Jesus was alive, people only wanted him dead. And if we were around then, we would have wanted the same. But in his death, and only in his death, we see the only way to life. That's the irony. When he was alive, they wanted him dead, but in his death, he offers life. Life with God through forgiveness of sin. And look, it's so crucial, just to end with this, it's so crucial to see that the first guy who got this was a total outsider. Don't you love that? A guy who was such a sinner, like literally crucified the Son of God. A guy from a background that made him so unlikely to understand what's going on in this moment. And yet God gave him the eyes of faith and he became the first believer post-cross. See, what it shows us is that it's not about proximity to Jesus or to church things. Uh, It's not about uh, a place of privilege or prior knowledge. It's not about anything we might have done in the past. Rather, having these eyes depends only on God giving them through Jesus' work at the cross. Do you see him? Do you see him for who he is and what he's done for you? Do you see Jesus? Because, friends, that's what Good Friday is about. That's the hope. And we know that the story isn't over. You know, come back Sunday and, and we're going we're gonna to talk more in Mark 16, actually. We're just going to pick up with the women and we're going to keep going. Um, but let me leave you with this question. Which of these three perspectives best matches yours right now? Are you like Pilate? who's sympathetic towards Jesus, maybe respectful even of Jesus and his teaching, but who, when push comes to shove, can't stand with him, can't bear the cost of being associated with Jesus. If so, then I want you to see what Pilate couldn't see. Jesus is more than just an innocent bloke. He is the sin-bearing Son of God. I want you to see that. Or maybe do you see yourself more with that second picture 
more with the soldiers and the chief priests and the general people, rejecting Jesus, sidelining him, uh, even mocking him, whether with words or simply in the heart. See, if so, notice how when Jesus dies, all that mocking ceases. All those accusations cease. None of it sticks. Jesus really is the Son of God. And the sad thing about this passage is all of those who were mocking, they missed out. They missed out on the hope that Jesus came to offer. And even worse, there is a day when every knee will bow before Jesus, whether willingly or not. And now, now is the chance we have to see him for who he is and bow our knees willingly because we know that he's come to lovingly bring us to God through his sacrificial loving death in our place. I want you to see that. But what we also need to see, of course, is that that second picture is all of us. All of us are the scoffers. I hear my mocking voice calling out among the scoffers. We are all responsible, like the centurion, for Jesus' death because of our sin. And that's why we need him to be the sin-bearing son of God. And so, like the centurion, do you see Jesus in that way? Do you see him as the one who has borne your sin at the cross? The one who took the judgment you deserve. Can you say that? That you deserve judgment for your sin, that I deserve judgment for mine. But that Jesus took it in your place. Can you say that? Do you see that? Do you have the eyes of faith like the centurion? Because God wants you to see Jesus for who he is. He wants you to turn to him, trust him, entrust yourself to him, and stand with him as the Son of God, come what may. And as we'll see on Sunday, those who do receive amazing, amazing, amazing life because of the hope that's in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, wherever we might be in thinking about these things this morning, uh, we pray that you would be the one to show us what we do not see, make us what we are not, challenge us where we need challenge, lift us up where we need encouragement. Lord, as we now turn our eyes towards communion and and thinking about what you have done for us. Help us to be honest with ourselves. Help us to deeply consider, uh, examine where our hearts are at. Uh, You are the one who sees all our, our thoughts and the desires of our heart. Lord, we know we can hide nothing from you. And yet you are the one who has given your son to cleanse us, forgive us and bring us into life with you. So Lord, help us to to sit with those truths now, both the discomfort of sin, but also the, the comfort on offer in the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, As I just prayed, we're we're going to share in a time of communion together. Uh, And so if the helpers could please come and uh, hand those out. Uh, And uh, what's going to happen is it's just going to be a a little packet that has a cracker in the top and juice down the bottom. Uh, If you are a believer in Jesus, someone who, like the centurion,